You are listening to Perplexity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Perplexity, a mystery podcast. As always, I'm your host, Kadra, and if you are new here, welcome. I tell tales every single week that have perplexed me. So if you are a mystery lover, if you love a good mystery that leaves you wanting more, uh, be sure to add this show to your list. Follow along. Uh, If you love true crime or are interested in true crime, this is also a great podcast for you. And that is what we are doing today. Uh, This is part two of the true crime case that I've been covering, uh, The Servant Girl Annihilator. So if you missed part one, you missed a lot. So be sure to go back and listen to that first. So we are going to be getting into part two now. Big trigger warning again. I issued one in part one, but I want to issue one again. This is a true crime case. So trigger warning for murder, violence, sexual assault, and trauma involving both adults and children, and trauma connected to racism and racial conflict. And as always, the sources that were used for today's episode will be down in the show notes. So just to recap a bit, especially if it's been a week since you've listened to part one, in part one, we discussed the first several murders and the many attacks of the servant girl annihilator in Austin, Texas in the 1880s. Uh, We talked about the incompetent, inexperienced police force that was here at this time and the blatantly racist practices that were occurring in Austin and all of the horrible things that were being circulated in the media. We also talked about or started to talk about a scandal with uh, the mayor at the time and the noble agency that he hired to help. They were basically con artists. Uh, And we left off on the brutal murders of Gracie Vance in Orange, Washington, and the attacks on Lucinda Body and Patsy Gibson, who had suffered severe injuries from axe blows. And Gracie had also suffered numerous injuries with a brick, Lucinda Body and Patsy Gibson. Unfortunately, while they survived, they had been sexually assaulted. So this was another brutal attack by the Servant Girl Annihilator, but this time it seems like he had really escalated. He had attacked four people all at once in a single night while the homeowner was just down the hall. And one of them was a male. So... He took on four adults at once, and strangely, it seemed at the time the killer left an intentional clue. A silver watch with no signs of blood or damage was found by police on Gracie's wrist. It was as if it had been placed there after the fact. So the two survivors of this attack, Lucinda and Patsy, received treatment for their injuries at the hospital, And soon police learned a black man named Doc Woods had earlier shown romantic interest in Gracie, but she rejected him and began dating Orange Washington. So Woods was seen as a suspect. He was taken into custody, but he had an alibi. He worked for a cotton farmer, and the owner of the farm confirmed that Woods had been there all night. Soon after, John Robinson, the owner of a dry goods store, came to Austin Police Department with his Swedish servant girl. 
The girl claimed she had been sleeping in the Robinsons' home for some time, only going to her quarters when she needed to retrieve personal belongings, like clothes. So we talked about this in part one, how like a lot of the servants were so scared and feared for their life. So they were sleeping in the uh, homeowner's quarters on the floor instead of sleeping in the servants' quarters, because that's where these attacks seemed to always be occurring. So this morning, like any typical morning, she went to just get some of her belongings from her servant quarters. But when she did this, she found that the servant quarters had been broken into and her clothing and her bedding was strewn all over the room, similar to several of the cases we talked about in part one. So she's worried that she's been robbed and she's looking through her few belongings. She's a servant. And her most prized possession was the only item that was missing, her silver open-faced watch that was a gift from her father. So police showed the girl the watch that they had pulled off of Gracie Vance's body. And the servant confirmed that this was her watch that had been stolen. She had no idea who Gracie Vance was or how she could have been wearing her watch. So to me, it seems like this was the killer's way of taunting police. And something we talked about in part one is like, why was this killer ransacking these servant quarters? Like he what would he want to take of value? Why didn't he go into the house and steal anything? So at this point, now I'm wondering if he was collecting trophies. So Captain Hennessy, the man who worked for the Noble Agency, soon returns to Austin. He had been on that personal business trip to New Orleans. So of course, when he left, that's when this shit hit the fan and four people were attacked. So he comes back from New Orleans Talk about bad timing. And after a couple days of being back in town, Hennessy would claim that an informant, a teenager named Jonathan Trigg, had witnessed a man named Oliver Townsend threatening to murder Mary Ramey. And Mary was the 11-year-old that had been murdered that was found in the outhouse. We talked about her last week. Townsend was a black man who had been convicted for petty theft in the past. Townsend had also been interrogated by Cheneville in the past for the murders, but Townsend insisted on his innocence, and the police didn't find anything tying him to the murders. People in town, including local press, had grown skeptical of Hennessy, and they uncovered that Jonathan Trigg worked at the same hotel where the noble detectives had been staying. So basically, to put this all together now, this theory is that Hennessy was a con artist. He was trying to drum up business. That's why he lied and said that he worked for the Pinkerton Agency, who we talked about last week. And he couldn't find any leads. He's feeling pressure from the mayor and from the police and from society here. So he basically made up this thing that didn't actually happen. He allegedly persuaded Jonathan Trigg to fabricate this story. Hennessy also claimed that Lucinda and Patsy were interviewed by his team at the hospital and that they both said Doc Woods had been at their quarters just before the attack. However, the chief doctor confirmed this would have been impossible because Lucinda and Patsy 
had been injured so badly that they were in critical condition and unconscious in the hospital. So Hennessy is clearly lying. They could not have possibly given any type of account to law enforcement. The city of Austin ultimately terminated the Noble Agency's contract after this. They fired Hennessy, and they asked him and his assistants to leave the city. So this is that scandal that I started talking about last week, and this will continue to come up, these scandals and um, mishandlings throughout part two. So the election is coming up. The investigation is still at a standstill, and Mayor Robertson is getting restless. There's no new leads, so it's time to start combing through old ones. It wouldn't take long for Walter Spencer, the boyfriend of the very first victim, Molly Smith, to be indicted for Molly's murder. He was indicted November 22nd, 1885, just two weeks before the election. A little convenient, I would say. Now, in case people forgot, Walter Spencer had been bludgeoned with the same axe that killed Molly, and police had already cleared him. The district attorney, who just so happened to be the mayor's brother, by the way, uh, seemed to have a change of heart. <laughs> so there's like some nepotism and stuff going on too. It's just this whole thing is so messy and ridiculous. Um, all of this just seems a little bit too convenient to me. You know, you interviewed Walter Spencer. He had been brutally attacked too. It would be pretty far-fetched for him to try to cover up him murdering Molly by hitting himself with an ax. So they clear him of any wrongdoing. All these months go by. And then two weeks before the election, you arrest him again. And police are proclaiming, like, we got him. This is our guy. Like, come on. Robertson would claim to the public that justice had been served. And by 52 votes, Mayor Robertson would win the Austin election. One week later, the trial of Walter Spencer was held. But no new evidence was presented. And luckily, the jury did not buy the prosecution's claims. So they had Spencer acquitted, ultimately. But now police are back to square one. They still don't know who is responsible for this. So Christmas Eve, 1885, a woman named Susan Hancock would be found barely conscious in the street. She had been severely bludgeoned with an axe, and her ear had been punctured with some type of sharp object. Unlike the other victims, Susan was not a servant. She was a 43-year-old mother to two children. She was a white woman, and she was married to a successful carpenter. Her husband was a guy named Moses Hancock. And Moses would later claim that on the night in question, they had both gone to a Christmas party together. And then they returned home and went to bed. And next thing he knows, he finds Susan dead in the street. Uh, around midnight, he awoke to a noise. He checked his wife's room, which, by the way, I always forget that in this time period, it was commonplace to not share a bed with your partner. <laughs> so, you know, he goes into her room. He finds that she's not there. And he did see that her room had been ransacked and the window was open and there was blood on the windowsill. Not good. So he ran outside and he found Susan in the backyard in a pool of blood. 
He also saw a figure fleeing the scene, but he couldn't get a good look at them. And that's similar to what happened with Orange Washington and Gracie Vance. So police would arrive on the scene for Susan Hancock, and they found a bloody axe in the yard uh, just below the bedroom window. And Moses said that this axe belonged to him, and he normally kept it on top of the wood pile outside. So again, we started talking about this in part one, but this is another example of a weapon of opportunity. It's like this guy would just show up and grab whatever he could find. His weapon of choice did seem to be an axe, but there was the case last week where the killer just grabbed a brick and finished off this woman outside with just, you know, this random brick he found outside. So everything's escalating. The scene is very bloody. And unfortunately, Susan Hancock would not survive this attack. Police once again brought a team of bloodhound dogs out to search the area, but they found nothing. And right in the middle of all of this tragedy and horror, a man on horseback rode up to the home and announced to police that there had been another brutal attack down the street. So it's said that this man rode up on horseback and was like screaming about how this woman had been found chopped into pieces. So the police would race over to Hickory Street, and this is where they would find young 17-year-old Eula Phillips. Eula was married, so very young to be married, but common in this time period. She was married to a man named Jimmy Phillips, and the Phillips family was very prominent. They were like one of the most well-known families in Austin. They were very wealthy, and... Jimmy Phillips, the husband, was the son of a prominent Austin architect. So once again, the second victim of the night came from a well-distinguished family. This is different from the servant girl annihilator's original M.O. He is no longer killing primarily black women and servants. It's like now all of a sudden we've gone to these rich, prominent women. Eula was incredibly popular. She was known to be one of Austin's most beautiful women, and her body was found in the backyard. She had been struck above her nose with an axe, and her forehead had been split open. There was also evidence that Eula had been sexually assaulted because police found that her uh, dress or her skirts had been pulled up over her head. Jimmy was found in the bedroom alive, but he had a severe axe wound to his head. So kind of similar to the very first case with uh, Walter Spencer and Molly Smith. Their 10-month-old baby was asleep in the next room also when all of this happened, uh, thankfully unharmed. But police would, again, find nothing. This time, though, white women were being targeted. So in my opinion... Magically, after this, Mayor Robertson granted Austin PD to finally hire 20 additional police officers, which they had been asking for since the first murder of the black servant, Molly Smith. Uh, they also hired a bunch of private detectives. So it's like all of a sudden they give a fuck. They were hiring um, also this time the Pinkerton Agency, who we talked about um, in part one because the Noble Agency claimed that they had ties to the Pinkertons. The Pinkertons were very well known. They were established in Chicago, and they were a private um, detective agency. And they claimed that they were very good 
at catching big time criminals and they had caught Jesse James. So Mayor Robertson was like, okay, we've got to solve this enough is enough. We've got to get the Pinkertons on this. So he does. They were known as the greatest detectives in all of America. They were very famous. Uh, they had provided security to Abraham Lincoln. So all of this sounds great. Yay, finally, we're gonna catch the son of a bitch. Okay, here's the problem though, okay? This was not the Pinkertons. I'm so sorry. Uh, this is not funny, but it kind of is. So Mayor Robertson had made a grave error. He hired the wrong Pinkertons by mistake. He hired a group that worked not for Alan Pinkerton, the owner of the famous Pinkerton agency. He hired a group that worked for a man named Matt Pinkerton. Uh, he owned the Pinkerton and Company United States Detective Agency. Matt Pinkerton was someone who had worked briefly for the legit Pinkerton Agency. He was their night watchman for a while, but he was quickly fired. And then he used his coincidental last name and started his own company. Uh, but he was in no way related to Alan Pinkerton. Uh, and he started this investigation business, um, it seems like, just as a way to, again, drum up business. The actual Pinkerton agency had gotten word of this, and they were circulating notices all around Chicago to not fall for this scam and to be on the lookout for Matt Pinkerton. So they started to call him a con artist. And... Um, this is who Mayor Robertson hired. I can't make this up. Robertson wanted to hire the legitimate Pinkerton agency, but when he went about hiring them, he wrote a telegram and he roughly addressed it to the Pinkerton agency and put no address on this telegram. So the Postal Service is trying to make sense of this and they delivered it to the fake Pinkertons by mistake. So uh, there you go. And eventually, Mayor Robertson finds out about this mistake, but conveniently, he does not disclose this to the public. He keeps this a secret. He's like, okay, these people cannot know that I fucked up again. So he knows at this point that it's a sham, but these fake Pinkertons continue with their investigation. They're prancing around Austin. And meanwhile, information circulated on a $1,000 reward for information on the murder of Eula Phillips and another $1,000 reward for information on the murder of Susan Hancock. This was one of the largest rewards offered in Texas history at this time. Meanwhile... Another $1,000 reward total was circulated for all of the other victims, the poor, predominantly black victims. So Molly Smith, Eliza Shelley, Irene Cross, 11-year-old Mary Ramey, and Gracie Vance, along with her boyfriend, Orange Washington. So all of these black, predominantly poorer victims, they get a $1,000 reward between all of them. And then we have two separate $1,000 rewards, like one for Susan and one for Eula. Just ridiculous. Now, because these rewards were so large, a lot of people think that all of the tips that started flowing through after this were, were convenient. Let's just say that. 
Um, so one of the tips that surfaced after these rewards were released uh, was a man named Bales. Um, the tip came from a man named Bales. And the tip regarded Eula Phillips. So Bales claims that while Eula publicly was a good wife, she had been dealing with a lot of abuse in her marriage. It is said that her husband Jimmy was a violent drunk and allegedly uh, this led Eula to starting to live this double life. So the tip was basically that at night, Eula Phillips would go to this hotel that was actually like, like there was this hidden brothel and Eula started working at this brothel and she drummed up all of these big clients, these wealthy men. And this tip alleged that Eula was servicing men at this area on the night of her murder. Jimmy allegedly found out what his wife had been up to and murdered her. And then Jimmy returned to the bedroom and hit himself with the blunt end of an axe to avoid suspicion. Seems pretty far-fetched. And it seems that the person who gave this tip probably just wanted the reward. But police were desperate to just find someone responsible for this. So Jimmy Phillips was arrested. And Bale then came forward with more, more information regarding the other white victim, Susan Hancock. So this time, Bale has a story about Susan Hancock and, like, he brings Susan Hancock's sister to this uh, lady named Mary. And Mary would claim that Susan was preparing to leave her husband and taking her children with her to Waco. Uh, she had grown tired and fearful of Moses because he was also an alcoholic, um, Mary even showed a letter to police that had allegedly been written by Susan, uh, apologizing to Moses. And she announced, you know, I'm leaving. Um, and then Bale basically alleged that Moses had found this letter and it sent him into this rage and he murdered Susan. So just to recap, Bale is alleging that two husbands decided to murder their wives on the exact same night with the exact same M.O., both copying an Austin at-large serial killer. Are you buying this? Because I'm not. Police also found it very hard to believe that the servant girl annihilator could murder two women within an hour on opposite sides of town, though. So going with the easy option, police tried Moses Hancock and Jimmy Phillips for the murders of their wives. So similar to what happened with Walter Spencer, Jimmy Phillips was prosecuted by the same district attorney, James Robertson, the mayor's brother, by the way, arguing no other obvious suspect had come forth, so it must have been Jimmy. And the trial was set to start in May. That's his whole argument. It's like, the husband did it because we don't have any other options. And don't get me wrong, usually when women are murdered, if they are married to a, to a man, it's usually the husband, nine times out of ten, I would say. But in this case, it just seems way too coincidental, and there was no evidence at all to support these theories. Um, meanwhile, another lead that had been brought forth for the case of Eula Phillips was brought forth by the fake Pinkerton agency. 
sorry, I keep having to remind myself that this isn't a ridiculous fantasy novel or like a Black Mirror version of the Looney Tunes. This was real life with real law enforcement and real politicians. So it's pretty terrifying. So the fake Pinkertons would allege that they had received a mysterious telegram from a prominent citizen alleging one of the men that Eula had become involved with at this brothel was a politician, a state officer and candidate for the governorship of Texas, which would point eventually to a man named William J. Swain. Swain had just been reelected in November as the state's comptroller. This eventually caused a huge scandal in Austin, Swain got a lot of negative publicity, and Swain denied having ever known Eula Phillips. He rejected these claims. He insisted that he was innocent. And it was later found that this telegram that came from this mysterious prominent citizen was actually more than likely written by uh, Phillips' rival candidate, a man named Saul Russ. So, you know, there's all this drama, thousands of dollars are being spent, there's no new leads, and Mayor Robertson would ultimately fire the fake Pinkertons and sent them back to Chicago. And then it was time for the trial of Jimmy Phillips to begin in May. Ultimately, despite having no evidence, uh, Jimmy Phillips was found guilty of second-degree murder, and he was sentenced to seven years why it was just seven, I don't know. But the majority of Austin citizens were not buying this. You know, they hear about like, oh, Mr. Phillips was found guilty. And they're all like, I know he didn't do this. It doesn't make any sense. Also, one of the sources that I found talked about how during the trial, they had Jimmy Phillips uh, compare his footprint to the footprints found near Eula Phillips for like comparison. And his foot size was in no way close to the footprints found at the scene. But then uh, the prosecution was like trying to explain this away and be like, oh, they, they look different because he would have been carrying his wife at the time that these footprints were left. So they would like look different. So then they either made Jimmy Phillips hold his like lawyer or hold the prosecutor and make a new footprint be like, look, now this looks like what was left outside. So I'm just trying to like visualize this happening in the court of law. But even after he did this, the footprint still looked nothing like the one that was found near Eula Phillips's body. And that is the only quote unquote evidence that they had against him. So they put him in prison. They sentenced him to seven years. And additionally, Swain, after getting all that negative attention in the media uh, about allegedly sleeping with Eula Phillips, uh, he ended up losing to his opponent, Saul Russ, the one who allegedly wrote the telegram. November 10th, 1886, the conviction against Jimmy Phillips was overturned due to lack of evidence. So he was sent to prison for like six months and then it got overturned. Uh, this reversed the verdict and Jimmy was brought back to jail to await a new trial. But that case was dismissed in 1887, again, due to lack of evidence. And Jimmy was released. So it was then time for the Hancock trial. During this trial, Moses Hancock was accused of murdering his wife, Susan, and the defense 
presented a new suspect, hoping that this would prove Moses's innocence. So the defense alleged that on February 9th, 1886, a sheriff's duty was called, a sheriff's deputy was called to Masontown, just outside of Austin's uh, city limits, to respond to a public disturbance. So it's said that there was this young black man named Nathan Elgin, and he had allegedly been spotted dragging a woman to a nearby house. It was alleged that the deputy arrived at the scene and Elgin attacked the deputy, causing the deputy to have to defend himself, ultimately shooting and killing Elgin. This is the deputy's side of the story. Obviously, we'll never fully know what happened because he shot and killed Elgin. So this is what the defense is claiming. Um, they're basically trying to make Elgin the suspect to help prove Moses is innocent. The deputy would then claim that he noticed Elgin's right foot was missing a pinky toe, and he recalled the footprints from the Phillips murder looked like they had a little toe missing. There was a cast of Elgin's foot that was made, and it was later compared with the uh, footprint left by Eula Phillips's body. And in this deputy's opinion, the footprints matched. Um, and it's also alleged that the footprints found near Mary Ramey outside the outhouse appeared to have a little toe missing on the right foot as well. But that's it, guys. Case closed. Good work, everybody. So, you know, this, this deputy who probably has very little experience in this area, he's like claiming to be an expert and be like, yeah, these, these totally match. It's just, these things would never hold up in court today. Other experts, and once again, the public and media ultimately did not agree with this. Uh, no one could come to an agreement about Moses Hancock being responsible either. And ultimately, the judge declared a mistrial. So Moses Hancock and Jimmy Phillips were both now free. Now, to go back a little bit, other murders had still been going on over the course of all these legal proceedings. January 31st, 1886, there was another axe murder that occurred, but this time it was 100 miles south of Austin in San Antonio. 28-year-old Patty Scott, a servant woman, had been bludgeoned to death. July 1887, there was another attack in Gainesville, about 250 miles north of Austin. Jeannie Watkins and Mamie Bostwick teenage daughters of wealthy cattlemen had been struck in the head with an axe. Watkins did not survive, but Mamie did, uh, but they couldn't recall anything from the attack. So many people have speculated that this was the work of the servant girl Annihilator. And just like the other cases, no killer was ever identified. But a little teensy bit of justice here, in 1887, Mayor Robertson was preparing for his re-election uh, when his botching of the Pinkerton hiring was finally exposed. Relatives of Eula Phillips and Susan Hancock actually called the Pinkerton agency and, you know, the real one, and they're asking for more answers and their opinion on who they thought the killer was because the police probably weren't telling them anything. And the real Pinkertons responded to the family's concerns and questions with a telegram 
And this telegram was later published in the newspaper. The telegram explained that no one from the Pinkerton agency was involved in this case. So it was found after further investigation, Robertson had paid the fake Pinkertons three grand using city funds. And then it was conveniently announced that Robertson would not be running for re-election. And then just as mysteriously as these horrific murders in Austin started, they stopped. And the killer remains at large to this day. So let's get into some theories as to who the killer could have been. Now, I want to preface this by saying throughout the time that all these murders took place, police arrested and interrogated around 400 suspects. So understandably, there are a lot of theories and a lot of suspects. Uh, I'm just going to go through some of the most popular ones. So one of the most popular theories came about thanks to Dorothy Ann Butler, a lead criminology professor at the time. And... Butler would say that the servant girl annihilator could have later become none other than Jack the Ripper, AKA one of the most infamous serial killers of all time that had a lot of victims in London, England. Many aspects of the killings bear striking similarities to the later 1888 Jack the Ripper slayings in London's East End. Like Jack the Ripper, the Servant Girl Annihilator preyed on vulnerable lower-class women. This would also be just a few years after the killings seemingly stopped in Austin, leaving the killer enough time to possibly flee the country and start over. London did have an influx of immigrants at the time. Uh, it would have also given the killer time to get confidence. After all, Jack the Ripper's M.O., was incredibly gruesome, involving slitting the throats of his victims, mutilating the corpses, including the face and reproductive organs, and even removing internal organs. Both killers were never conclusively identified or captured, too. And interestingly enough, there was a cook in Austin at the time that the murders were taking place uh, named Maurice, he had been arrested and interviewed by police as a suspect at one point. Uh, the murders stopped for a while when Maurice temporarily relocated to New Orleans. And then he came back and the murders started back up again. And then he fled to London. And once again, the murders in Austin seemed to stop. So who knows? Maybe Allegedly, this Maurice person could have been America's first serial killer and Jack the Ripper. Another theory is that there were multiple killers responsible for all of this. There could have been copycat killers. Uh, some people think the killer only stopped because they uh, maybe were incarcerated or died. Uh, like basically they never left Austin. And just my opinion, in case you're curious, I personally, I, I don't think that this could have been someone new to the area. Uh, I think a more reasonable theory is that this man was someone who was incredibly comfortable in the town. He likely had lived there a long time, likely started off committing petty crimes, 
I would suspect had a history of violence and assaulting women and his crimes continued to escalate as he got more comfortable and realized the police couldn't figure out who was responsible. He seemed to know also where the vulnerable communities were, uh, when to come and go, and he seemed to know people's routines. Uh, I think that the more police and media mishandled the case, he just grew that confidence. Um, or, and again, this is just alleged and my opinion, perhaps this killer was part of the police force himself or a volunteer on this night watch because he always seemed to know exactly when to strike, exactly when police were out, how to get away. Uh, and then maybe he wanted a fresh start and wanted to evade law enforcement. So maybe he took a train to these other towns throughout Texas and started killing other people in Gainesville and in San Antonio. So those are some theories as to what could have happened there, who the killer could have been. So just to wrap things up, let's talk about some paranormal phenomena that is allegedly going on today in these areas where the murders took place. And this is how I originally found out about this story, because one of my friends, Brooke, sent me a TikTok talking about a haunted Whole Foods in Austin. And this Whole Foods was built on top of the now demolished home of one of the victims of the Servant Girl Annihilator. Um, some of the sources I read said it was where Molly Smith lived, the first victim. So interestingly, in modern times, visitors and locals alike have reported strange activity around the sites of the infamous murders. Uh, you can go on ghost tours through the servants' quarters where Molly Smith and Irene Cross were once killed. People claim on these tours to see apparitions and hear unexplained noises. So could they be the spirits of the murdered girls unable to rest until they're brought to justice? Similarly, in the downtown blocks near Eliza Shelley and Gracie Vance's murders, there have been some reports of paranormal activity. Much of Austin's 1884 population boom architecture remains today in the form of historic hotels, houses, train depots, and government buildings. It's chilling to imagine that this serial killer once walked the same streets. Hiding in plain sight among the crowds, watching his next victim from the shadows. Visitors stand at busy street intersections today where the once mutilated bodies of these victims were discovered all those years ago. Austin residents today are often completely unaware of the disturbing history beneath their feet. The crimes of the servant girl annihilator represent an early example of a serial killer foreshadowing the rise of a more well-known but equally notorious killer like H.H. Holmes or Albert Fish or Jack the Ripper. Though over a century has passed since the Austin murders, the mystery and tragedy still captures the imagination today. Why does the servant girl annihilator continue to intrigue us after all this time? What compels some murderers to acts of such barbarity? How did this perpetrator escape the law so easily? Was it poor police work? Was it blatant racism running rampant throughout the investigation? Was it the lack of forensics at the time? Or was it a little bit of everything? Additionally, the obscured identities and information that you can find today 
about the majority of the servant girl annihilator victims, I think strongly speaks to the disturbing social undercurrents of racism and classism from this time. We must remember most of the victims came from poor, marginalized black communities that had less power and resources to pursue justice compared to the local elites like the Hancock family and the Phillips family. The murderer could have easily been an upstanding Austin businessman or leader temporarily succumbing to madness, as well as the speculated Jack the Ripper. If so, connections and privilege may have helped conceal his crimes. To me, this case illustrates how a vicious serial killer was apparently able to operate freely right under the noses of local Austin police and how the victim's lower social status possibly hindered the hunt for the perpetrator. These tragic killings revealed dark flaws in a community that its residents preferred to not closely examine. We may never uncover who was responsible for these shocking murders, but this case continues to unsettle and captivate curious minds today, and it is certainly perplexing. And that is the story of the servant girl Annihilator and allegedly America's first serial killer. So I know that was long. I went down a really big rabbit hole with this case, but I know you guys wanted longer episodes. Uh, this was a two-parter. So if you guys are still with me, let me know. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, let me know your thoughts in the comments or shoot me a DM. Have you ever heard of this case before? I know I hadn't. And a big part of me wonders if the reason I hadn't is because of who the majority of these victims were. Do you think that this could have been none other than Jack the Ripper? And if you want more exclusive content and you want to support the show, you can always check out my Patreon. You can join for just $3 a month. I've got tons of bonus content on there, creepy stories from the internet, personal stories. I just released my coverage recently on the Hell Camp documentary on Netflix, and I have the Daughters of the Cults uh, coverage coming out in February. Um... My merch is on Bonfire. You can see that link in the show notes if you want to get some merch. Um, and last but certainly not least, please hit that subscribe button if you're watching on YouTube and you enjoyed. Uh, if you're listening on a podcast platform, you can add the show to your list. And please, 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 please leave five-star reviews. Each time you do that, it boosts me up the charts. And that is the best way you can support me. I hope you all have a great week. I hope you all stay safe. And I can't wait to talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Perplexity, a mystery podcast. Hosted, written, and produced by Kadra Brennan. If you enjoyed today's episode, tell the world about it by going to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leaving a five-star review. It helps the show more than you know. Contact, support, and merch links can be found in the episode description. And if you have a story to share or a topic request, send an email to perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail.com. Cager would love to read your story on the podcast. Until next week, stay curious.